From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The federal program known as DACA turns 10 today. DACA was transformative for me. It changed my trajectory completely. DACA meant young people brought to the U.S. as children could go to college or work legally, at least temporarily. Now DACA is held up in the courts and advocates want lawmakers to step in. Ten years later, we are still waiting for the United States Congress to make a permanent legislation to protect DREAMers and DACA recipients. Also, first-person stories from DACA recipients in Colorado, including one who's a teacher. I'm living in this country undocumented, teaching your children, supporting them. I'm 100% here. Hi, I'm CPR's President Stuart Vanderwilt. I'm taking just a moment to speak to all of our valued members and to thank you for your continued support of Colorado Public Radio. The news and music services you rely on continue to grow to better serve communities across the state because of your generosity. Your membership matters, and we are so grateful for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Ten years ago today, President Obama stood outside the White House to announce the creation of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA. Effective immediately, the Department of Homeland Security is taking steps to lift the shadow of deportation from these young people. DACA allows young people brought to the U.S. unlawfully as children to attend college or work. Eligible individuals who do not present a risk to national security or public safety will be able to request temporary relief from deportation proceedings and apply for work authorization. 18,000 Coloradans have taken Obama up on that offer. We'll hear some of their stories today. We'll also hear about the thousands of young immigrants who don't qualify for the program. Marissa Molina advocates for immigration reform with the group Forward.us. She became the first DACA recipient appointed to a state board in Colorado as a trustee of Metropolitan State University of Denver. Marissa, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Let's shed some light on who's actually affected by DACA. People may picture kids in grade school, but at this point, how old are people who have DACA status and generally what's going on in their lives? You know, these are folks who are now starting families, people who are in their early 30s, um, buying their first homes and really building out their lives in a very different way than when we were talking about dreamers 10 years ago before DACA. Right. When we were still going to school, trying to figure out how to get to college, pay our way through college. And now it's a very different conversation. These are adults um, making their full lives in this country. You had to be established in the U.S. by 2007 to qualify for DACA. So really the youngest a DACA recipient can be actually is 15. 
We'll talk about what that means for kids who don't qualify in just a bit. We mentioned more than 18,000 Coloradans have had DACA. Nationally, it's more than three quarters of a million people. And listeners may remember President Trump tried to end DACA. That didn't end up happening. But it hasn't been the only challenge the program faced. What's the current state of DACA? Currently, folks who have had DACA in the past can continue to get their renewal applications in. But if you are a person who is a new applicant, you are not able to currently have your application processed by USCIS. And that is because a Judge Hainan in 2021 ruled that the program was unconstitutional and he ended the ability for new applications to be processed, but the renewal stayed in place. Now that case is going on to a different court and that court will evaluate the same question. Is DACA constitutional or not? We expect the decision to be a negative one. The Fifth Circuit is set to hear the DACA case on Wednesday, July 6th. And this ruling, like I was saying, we're expecting a negative ruling from this court, could end DACA renewals. You're actually in Washington, D.C. right now. You're with other DREAMers. What's your mission there? We want to make sure that folks have front and center the successes of the DACA program, but then have a real clear sense of the limitations of the program and the fact that 10 years later, we are still waiting for the United States Congress to make a permanent legislation to protect DREAMers and DACA recipients. And I think what's important for us to note, too, is that, as you were mentioning, DACA recipients are now older. The program had a very clear cutoff date, which means that now we have a whole new generation of DREAMers who do not have DACA, of DREAMers who were never able to apply for DACA because the program was the initial applications for the program stopped being accepted again in 2021. And so all of these added layers have now created, you know, a whole new group of students who are fully undocumented. And unlike DOC recipients, undocumented students don't have deportation protection. They don't have a social security number. And so all those things make it really challenging for them to go out into the workforce and contribute those skills that they've worked so hard to develop. We should say a Pew Research Center poll in 2020 found that about three-quarters of Americans support permanent legal status for immigrants brought to the U.S. as children. That includes more than half of Republicans who were polled. Yes, there is strong bipartisan support among the American people. It's really up to the Senate to bring one of these bills up to a vote, and the time is more important now than ever to get it done. More of our conversation with Marissa Molina later in the show. First, one recipient's anger at seeing his parents taken advantage of. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Ballots are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. 
Today, we're marking 10 years of DACA. There are thousands of recipients in Colorado right now, including Alejandro Fuentes Mena. He recorded his story for Boulder-based Modus Theater for their UndocuAmerica monologues. It's called Deport Me. I was just a kid when I realized what being undocumented meant. At age eight, I started going to work with my dad so I could help him rebuild the entire outside of other people's homes, all the while not having a real home of our own. I would see my dad as he calculated. I would help him do the math. I would research and discover that for this job, people would charge $20,000. He had been screwed over so many times that he decided he was only going to charge $15,000. They would see his strength in Spanish, his lack of English and documented status, and give him about $10,000. And that's who my father believed he was, half the man I thought he was, half the value of any other. I witnessed as my mother would leave for an entire weekend 72 hours to take care of someone else's family. And that entire weekend, she was lured with the promise of over $300 for her work, but she would come back with only $100 in her pocket. $100 that she saw as a blessing. $100 that I saw as an attack on our family. All those rich families saw little value in everything my mom did for them. They would take her away only to use her and spit her out. The money they paid her was barely enough for food on the table. It didn't cover the worry my mom had because she couldn't be home to take care of us when we were sick, help us with homework, comfort us when we returned to an empty house. A hundred dollars for a whole weekend away from her family? Like she was worthless? But don't you understand? She was priceless to me. Well, spending my weekends without my mom as she cared for other people's children and spending those weekends working for my dad for free so he wouldn't lose money for the privilege of building a home for someone else's family and witnessing this over and over and over again, I began to think that I wasn't worth much either. Despite the fact that I had been recognized at school as gifted and talented, despite the fact that I was a math whiz, that I learned English, a completely unknown language in about a year, and that I was an engaged student, despite the fact I was the precocious worship leader at my church, I let those weekends of feeling worthless affect me. I began making jokes rather than making plans for my future, playing games rather than paying attention, chasing girls rather than chasing my dreams. And like all self-fulfilling prophecies, I got to the point where my grades reflected what society said my parents and I were worth. Half-priced human beings. But luckily, I had a teacher named Ms. Kovacic who worked hard to remind me of my value and helped convince me that what this society was telling me and my family was wrong. 
with her support and that of many others, I got myself out of that pit of self-deprecation, past the insecurities, past the hate, past the negativity, past that half version of me into a good college and into a position where I am now an educator who teaches math. And like my mentors, I teach young children of their value because all children are valuable just as you and I are valuable. As a teacher, I can't help myself. Let me take you to school for a few moments. Y'all good with that? So let's start off with a little math lesson. My father is one man, one of the hardest workers I know. My mother is one woman, one of the strongest and most compassionate individuals in my life. My sister is one daughter, a brat but a lovable one, and an American citizen. And I'm one son, half of this country and half of Chile, but we are four whole beautiful gifts, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, not the half-priced individuals that society has attempted to make us. And moving to applied math and economics, if this country continues to deport the undocumented community, it is missing out on courageous, strong, intelligent, family-loving, hard-working people of great value. And that is not only our loss, it is your loss to miss out on us. Not to mention the billions in taxes we bring in every year, which is billions more than large corporations are paying. Lastly, moving beyond math to ethics, Paying an undocumented person half of their value for their life's work? Extracting all you can get from them to build your homes and take care of your families? And then deporting them as if they had not brought value? Is not just mathematically flawed. It is also an American math story problem gone wrong. It is criminal to treat us as subservient and less desirable. I'm living in this country undocumented, teaching your children, supporting them, engaging their minds in math and in their dreams. I'm 100% here, and I'm 100% committed to this country in which I was raised, this country that constantly seeks to spit me out. Lose me, and you lose my value. Not just the money I pay in taxes, the money I pay into a social security that I would never be able to benefit from, but you lose my ability to inspire, connect, and engage. You lose my ability to bring an impact. You lose the knowledge I bring to my students who are your children. This country would be foolish to lose me. So, deport me. Deport me, because in the end, it's your loss. DACA recipient Alejandro Fuentes Mena. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Ten years ago today, people brought to the U.S.'s children could apply for DACA. Marissa Molina is one of them. She's now an immigration reform advocate, and she's a trustee of Metropolitan State University of Denver. It strikes me that for a lot of reasons, DACA has really helped a lot of people, obviously, with going to college and getting jobs. But even with it, some of the recipients spend so much time worrying about the well-being of their families. I wonder if that's something you've dealt with. I mean, absolutely. You have DACA recipients who now have U.S. citizen children. You have DACA recipients whose parents may be undocumented without a real pathway to citizenship. And so when we talked about the idea of having a mixed status family, right, you might have folks who are U.S. citizens, you might have people who are fully undocumented in DACA recipients just within one family. And so it creates all of these different layers of anxiety and uncertainty that can become really difficult for so many families. At the same time, as a trustee at Metro State University of Denver, you have a firsthand look at recipients like Alejandro, who we just heard from, and what it's meant to get access to higher education. Can you share with us what you've seen? Yeah, you know, I truly feel honored and privileged to have the opportunity to serve in this role at MSU Denver as an institution that serves the largest number of DACA recipients. And just Two, three weeks ago, I had the opportunity to speak at Dreamer graduation, and it's a graduation that pulls together students who are dreamers, who are DACA recipients from the Auraria campus. And there was this woman who spoke and said, DACA didn't come to be until many years after I had graduated high school, but it gave her the opportunity to go back to school, even as an adult. And this is why I feel really proud to be a Coloradan, because in Colorado, we've passed in-state tuition. And so we've given this additional pathway for students to be able to go to college without having to think about, you know, do I belong there or not? And just to see the, you know, the pride of the families, the parents who were wiping away tears, like I think about the lives that have been touched by the program being so much more than just, you know, the Coloradans who have DACA, but thinking about their families, thinking about their kids and what that now means for the trajectory of those families. DACA was created in the middle of your own college experience. How did that impact you? You know, being in Washington, D.C. right now has been such an emotional moment for me thinking about where I was 10 years ago. The summer of 2012, after I've come home from my sophomore year in college at Fort Lewis College, I told my parents, I'm going to leave college. I was paying out-of-state tuition. I was undocumented. There was no DACA. And I couldn't see a way for me to pay back my parents for their enormous sacrifices if I didn't have the ability to work, if I was going to graduate with a degree that would look pretty on a wall, framed but mean nothing without that social security number. And so I received DACA that summer of 2012. I went back to Fort Lewis College, was able to apply for my first private student loan to pay for school. And then in 2013, which was my senior year of college, Colorado passes the asset legislation, which granted undocumented and DACA students in-state tuition. So DACA was transformative for me. It changed my trajectory completely. 
It is one of the reasons why doing work in public service is incredibly important to me because I was being given this huge opportunity by this country I love. I think many people may not realize that it costs money to apply for DACA and that the status only lasts two years unless you renew. Some families choose to try to get an attorney to help them with the application as well. Do you think cost has prevented people from applying for DACA or keeping it up to date, renewing it? I absolutely think so. You know, there's definitely coming out of the pandemic more financial hardship for some families or for families who now, you know, a DACA recipient who's a parent, you know, and there's just all these added costs that can create challenges for people. I think that we've had so many different community organizations that have been willing and able to provide free legal aid support as needed. There's have been also scholarships available to folks. And so there are definitely some community support that exists out there. And there's always room for more. Marissa, thanks so much. Thank you, Andrea. Marissa Molina is a DACA recipient who works at Forward.us on immigration reform. After a break, the anxiety of going through an immigration checkpoint. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. Irving Reza of Denver used to feel intense anxiety every time he arrived at an immigration checkpoint. We're sharing his story as we mark the 10-year anniversary of DACA. It's called The Most Beautiful Moment, read by actor John Lithgow. On an annual basis, I go to El Paso, Texas, to see my grandmother. My problem is not that I must go to El Paso. It's when I return home to Colorado, I have to pass through an immigration checkpoint. The U.S. has CBP checkpoints, usually within 100 miles from the border. CBP stands for Customs and Border Protection. Everyone calls them the Border Patrol, but the agents don't like that. They're really sensitive people. The name Border Patrol hurts their feelings. Sometimes when you're stopped, they want to search your vehicle. It all depends on the agent and the time of day. If you have too much luggage, that might be suspicious, as you could be trying to smuggle something. If you are carrying a reasonable amount of stuff, that might be suspicious, since you could be trying to pass off as a normal traveler. If you're traveling without luggage, that too might be suspicious, since you could be traveling in a hurry. Don't make me talk about passengers. That might be suspicious. One night, when I was heading to Denver after passing through Las Cruces, I stopped at the checkpoint and gave them my EAD, my DACA Employment Authorization Document. The officer asked me where I was going. Me, to Denver, officer 
Why are you going there? I live there. How long were you in El Paso? I actually started to count the days. If I arrived on Friday night, and today is Thursday night, does that count as a full day? The officer wasn't really interested in my answer. He just wanted a reason to search the trunk of my car. I felt that I had no choice. I said, yes. I pressed the button on my 2004 Cavalier to open the trunk. It being a junker with 200,000 miles, the trunk door opens, but it doesn't pop up. It has to be lifted up every time. Opening it with a key is quite the puzzle. A really old car. The officer asked again, please open the trunk. It is open. You just have to lift it. I imagined the officer thinking, oh, this is too much trouble. Sir, get out of the car. We're going to use the search dogs. I got out and waited there in the open. It was pitch black, except the areas surrounded by the floodlights. It was also dead silent. I could see where the light ended and where the void began. Although I couldn't see anything in the dark, I knew there were hidden shrubs, sand, critters, and immigration. I waited under the watchful eye and close surveillance of five officers, <laughs> as if I was capable of beating them up and making a dramatic escape. I waited in a resting stance, slightly bent knees, hands on my waist, relaxed elbows, steady breathing, and looking at them without looking at them. Otherwise, I could learn how many immigration officers it takes to screw a Mexican. The officer with the search dog asked me out loud, does the passenger door open? Yes, you just have to unlock it from the inside. Cavalier 2004, manual lock, rolling windows, busted dashboard, $1,500. The officer told me that I could get going. He then asked, your trunk closes, right? Yeah. After that experience, I always wonder as I approach a checkpoint if they're going to search my car. Sometimes they just take my ID and that's it. Other times they don't even stop anyone and I keep on going. Officer one, are we gonna stop anyone today, dude? Officer two, nah, I just really don't feel like it. Last year, after going to El Paso, I decided to visit White Sands National Monument. I made a right turn in Las Cruces and drove until I reached the checkpoint. I always have my ID ready and I, I gave it to the officer. Officer, where are you coming from? Me, from El Paso. Where are you going? To the monument. Why are you going there? To see the monument. Can I search your car? When she asked to search my car, I remembered a conversation that I had with Victor Galvan, who leads immigrant rights trainings. I told him about my previous experience. He asked me why I let them search my car. Uh, I don't know. He told me to exercise my rights the next time I pass through a checkpoint. 
So in response to the officer's question, I said no. The officer took a step back and went to talk to her supervisor. I usually don't look at them if I'm not talking to them since I don't want to look mean at them. The officer came back and asked me if they could search my trunk. Is it truly necessary? Just answer the question, sir. No. The officer went back to talk with her supervisor. I assume they did not really expect that kind of response. I imagined their conversation. <laughs> officer, he said no to searching the car. What do I do now? It's not supposed to be this way, supervisor. Okay, what if you ask him again and see if he flinches this time? Sir, I asked him again and he said no again. Well, I, um, we can impound his car and search it later. A cavalier. We have standards here. Let him go. I was permitted to move on. And in a few miles, I reached the monument. Once I got to the monument, I went to their checkpoint. The attendant said, Welcome to White Sands National Monument. Would you like a day pass or a season pass? I'll take the day pass. Thank you. Here is a map and your car sticker. Enjoy your stay. When I'm at a CBP checkpoint, I always figure that they will stop me, search me, and shake me up a bit. I've not heard of any DACA recipient being arrested or beaten at a checkpoint, which doesn't mean that it hasn't happened and that I won't be the one it happens to. But if the agents think either I or my car look suspicious, that could be it for me, whether I'm guilty or not. Even spending a single day in detention could mean losing my DACA status, and that would be a disaster. But that day, near Las Cruces, 50 miles from the Mexican border, I was stopped at a checkpoint, and I exercised my rights. And my rights, as written in the Constitution, were respected. For many Americans, the Constitution is something they might take for granted. But that day, when my rights were respected and the Bill of Rights was honored, I experienced the most beautiful national monument America has ever created. Actor John Lithgow reading a monologue written by Irving Reza, a DACA recipient in Denver. The monologue is part of the Undocu America project from Boulder-based Modus Theater. DACA was created 10 years ago today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.